This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Juro Osawa from the information on the recent happenings about Chinese technology giants, from why Huawei's deal with AT&T fell apart in the US, to the recent tension within Tencent on the future of WeChat. Hi, Juro. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. You're based in Hong Kong. I'm based in Hong Kong, yes. Yes, and I'm talking to Juro Osawa, reporter at The Information. Everybody knows because I interviewed Shai recently and they know that I'm a subscriber to The Information. So Juro, it's good to have you on the show because I've been reading some of your stories in at The Information. That's great, thank you. Yeah, so I got you here because there were two articles that you have recently written about Chinese tech giants and I thought maybe it would be great to hear about your perspectives on those two big stories. But before that, I would like to get to know you better. How do you start your career? So I'm from Japan and... Uh, uh, my first job after uh, graduate school, I studied in the U.S. and I went back to Japan and the first job was at a Japanese newspaper. It was the English edition of a Japanese newspaper. So that's how I got into the industry. Then I worked for years at uh, Dow Jones, which owns the Wall Street Journal. And I was a Wall Street Journal reporter in Japan and then in Hong Kong. So I started covering tech while I was at the Wall Street Journal in Japan. And then I continued to cover tech after I moved to Hong Kong almost six years ago. Then I've been covering uh, mainly Chinese companies. I joined Information right at the end of uh, 2016, so just over a year ago. For those of you who may, you know, who don't know the Information, it's a tech news publication that's in based in San Francisco. And it was actually started by former Wall Street Journal reporter, Jessica Lesson. And I knew Jessica when she was uh, still at the Wall Street Journal, and we had worked on some stories together. And uh, I also knew some other people there at the information who had moved from the Wall Street Journal. So I was very interested in that publication. And also, it's pretty unique. It's all based on paid subscription and no advertisement. So it's a model that's very actually very simple. Basically, you focus on stories that you wouldn't read anywhere else and try to do all original reporting and deeply reported stories and ask readers to pay for them. I'm a fan of the subscription model myself too. I'm pretty interested to know in your coverage with the information, what are the areas and companies that you focus on, particularly with China? Last year, so we do, because we don't have that many people covering Asia. So uh, last year when I first joined, it was me and Shai Oster who went on this program for. Then we now have uh, another person, so three of us. So it's, you know, it's still not many porters. And so we do cover all of the big developments. Last year, one of the things I focused on was Chinese companies expanding overseas. So you saw, you know, Alibaba investing in Southeast Asia or Tencent, a lot of other companies, Didi, Didi investing in other ride-sharing companies. And so that was a pretty big focus. And apart from Chinese companies, SoftBank has been a very big part of my reporting. And I've done several stories about SoftBank and just, you know, everyone wants to know what the next move is for their uh, $100 billion fund. And uh, they're the biggest tech investor in the world. So those have been the main 
main topics that we focused on. There's still a continuing story with Masayoshi Sun's $100 billion fund. And I'm very curious, just before we go into the main topic of conversation, throughout your career journey, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience? I guess this probably applies to any job, but everyone I've met who has been doing this for a long time has kind of figured out their own ways of doing things, doing the job. So there, there can be many different ways to do it, and you sort of do it at your own pace. So what works for you may not work for me. So that's the kind of thing after all these years. And it's interesting because that's basically working at your own pace and, and whatever you do, you know, it's actually your own progress is the most important and not really competing with others. Am I right to say that? Well, there's a lot of competition, yes, but you often want to be the first one to write about something. But I think it's, it's always, but you still need to figure out how you can do this. Yeah, how other people do it may not be the same. Then we shall not waste any time. That's talk about the two interesting stories that recently you have written and i think i will start with the first one was regarding huawei's plans to actually go into the u.s market and i think you have written two articles and i think the first one was actually talking about huawei's plans to challenge apple in the u.s and following by the at&t deal which collapsed now the question is what are we going to do about going to the u.s market before that I think it's good to help my audience to understand who Huawei is. And can you introduce Huawei as a company to my audience? And who are the key executives of the company that's behind the smartphone division? Sure. So Huawei is probably right now, a lot of people know Huawei for mobile phones. But uh, its uh, biggest business is actually supplying uh, telecom equipment, like uh, routers, switches, antennas. Those are the things that telecom companies use to build their networks. So it's the kind of infrastructure that they provide. And they're one of the world's biggest players in this field. That's the market where they compete against Ericsson, Nokia. Those guys also provide infrastructure. Huawei is going to play a big role because the world is moving to 5G network. They have been working on it, I mean, along with all these competitors. And they are a really big player in this field. And then smartphone business is what they've been doing. More recently, they have grown very fast in this area. And probably the past five years, uh, they've become a really major player. And Huawei is now the world's third biggest maker of smartphones by volume. And that was as of uh, last year. They're after Samsung and Apple based on how many phones they sell. You know, Huawei used to sell very cheap phones, you know, in China mainly, but it has really become a global player and also selling a lot of high-end phones. So I think it's probably the most internationally successful Chinese smartphone maker, even though Xiaomi has been expanding in India and other places. Huawei has a big presence in Europe, uh, Middle East, and some parts of Latin America. And this smartphone business has been led by an executive uh, named uh, Richard Yu, uh, Yu Chendong. Uh, he has been overseeing this business for the past six years. And so under Richard Yu, the business has really expanded. And, and also the shift toward more high-end smartphones happened. And just to sort of add a little bit more to Huawei, it is still a private company. And the way I always like to think of it is like adding Cisco, Apple, and a couple other companies put together into one in China. And they still report their revenues and profits as if they were a public company. And one of the key interesting features is that they have actually even started selling phones in the US. I think Honor P9 was the first. But I think what was interesting from what you were covering was 
there is a backstory to why Huawei wanted to launch a phone in the US and subsequently the deal with AT&T collapsed. Can you talk about the backstory to this attempt to the US? Sure. So they have been selling phones in the US uh, over the you know years, but actually that business has been like pretty much insignificant because they've only been selling their phones on open market, which is you know retailers online like Amazon or Best Buy. And those channels in the U.S. are very small compared to the carriers. So most Americans buy their phones from uh, telecom companies like AT&T or Verizon. And, you know, if you don't work with a carrier, in the major carrier in the U.S., you're nobody and in the U.S. So Huawei has been trying. Well, the first story I wrote about this, their conversations with AT&T was back in uh, March of last year. That was when they were in the kind of early stage of discussions in order to you know, strike a deal with uh, AT&T. And the U.S. market is important because you know China is a bigger market for smartphones than the U.S., but... The U.S. is still the biggest when it comes to uh, more expensive phones, high-end phones, the ones that cost more than like 500 U.S. dollars. And it's a lucrative market that Huawei really wants to target. So this conversations with AT&T that has went on for you know, more than a year, I guess, was really important. That was how they have been trying to get into the U.S. market. What happened with the deal with AT&T? Why did it collapse? Is it just merely political pressure? Because it was supposed to announce during the CES event in 2018 this year at Las Vegas. That's right. Huawei was preparing to make that announcement last month, at early January, at the uh, CES. They had already prepared the speech, but the deal with AT&T, which was supposed to be a deal where AT&T will sell one of Huawei's flagship phones in the U.S. market starting February. But it collapsed at the very last minute after basically the deal met opposition from lawmakers in the U.S. And they sent a letter in December to FCC, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, which uh, oversees the telecom industry. So like companies like AT&T, there was a lot of pressure. And so the lawmakers were raising concerns about the deal because you know Huawei in the past has also being criticized or being controversial because there were questions about whether Huawei's equipment could be used by the Chinese government to spy on Americans in the U.S. So if you allow the company to do business in the U.S. market and sell all of these phones, what are the potential risks of doing this? And you know, those were the, basically the questions that lawmakers have been raising. And this came at a very sensitive time for uh, AT&T as well, because AT&T is trying to do the Time Warner deal. You know, political opposition was something I was told that really ended this deal. I think it's much more interesting to put some depth into understanding what are the preparations made by Huawei to enter the US market. And I think the deal dynamics aside, and also, of course, this looming trade war that was, I think, Shai brought up in his earlier conversation with me. What are the preparations that needed to be made by Huawei or any Chinese company to enter the US market? Well, first of all, this is not limited to Chinese companies. But when any company wants to sell their phones in the US, there's a lot of procedures. Because, you know, if, they, if you're going to work with a carrier, there are a lot of adjustments that you need to make on it. And it's not like you can take the phones that you're already selling in China and just, you know, ship it to the U.S. and start selling them because there are different standards. Carriers also have different requirements. First, you have to 
modify and make a lot of modifications to the phone. You know, one of the things they had to go through was to get the phone's chips certified by AT&T to make sure that it met AT&T's requirements. And Huawei makes its own, designs its own chips for smartphones. You know, that had to be cleared first. And then there are a lot of other changes that you need to make to the phone before, you know, it's basically approved before it's ready to be released in the US market. That's why, you know, the whole process takes so long. The most of last year they were spending, the, the US team had been working on that, or not just US team, the China team, for example, the team that designs Huawei's chips also had to work on it as well, the technical modifications. This is interesting because a lot of people just think that you can just sell a phone easily in the US market just because you have one in China. Right, right. That's like, a, so, you know, when people say, you know, oh, when is Xiaomi going to start selling, the, you know, their phones in the US market? And especially if they wanted to do that through carriers, it's always going to be a very complicated process. So my question would be, there were two questions in my mind. The first one I want to ask is, with this deal collapse for Huawei, do you think that it will also, for Xiaomi who wants to go into the US, do you foresee the same challenges that they face as well? So the challenges for each company may be different, but uh, for Huawei, so the deals collapse means that, that they really have to rethink the global strategy. So if you look at the US market now, Huawei still does sell some of its phones, like you know we said earlier, through online channels like Amazon and others. And the phones that AT&T was supposed to sell, it will be available in the US through other channels, but those other channels don't really count in the US market. So that means, you know, if Huawei can't really work with carriers in the U.S., they would have to focus on other things and other parts of the world. So they may have to focus on Europe and other markets where they're already quite big and, you know, just focus on ex expanding into those other areas. You know, what I'm hearing is that there are very few things that probably Huawei can do in the U.S. to change the situation. I think in Europe, with their telecom network business, they have, you know, figured out ways to gain confidence of the local governments. In the UK, for example, they've opened a facility where UK intelligence officials can supervise Huawei's telecom equipment business and get them to participate in the process to make sure that, okay, so you can, you know, you can trust Huawei to do the business here, but it's hard to imagine the same kind of thing arrangements happening in the US, especially under the current climate. One of the executives that I spoke to for my story was saying that there are no other ways. Basically, the options are very limited now. For other companies also, you know, another issue that comes up when Chinese smartphone makers try to go overseas is IP. So you also need to basically arm yourself with a lot of IP. Otherwise, you get it, you know, you get sued by everyone. You know, some of the Chinese smartphone makers uh, that have been operating and are big in China, you know, that could be, you know, one of the challenges. And Huawei already has accumulated a lot of IP through its telecom business. And Xiaomi has, you know, also uh, invested in it and bought some uh, rights to intellectual property. But that's another thing that to consider. So there are a lot of hurdles before all of those companies can enter the US market. I think it's pretty interesting to know that the next steps of Huawei is actually 
expanding to everywhere else except for the US market for the time being, I guess. That seems to be the case right now, yes. So I think I will come to the second part of this conversation, which is about the turmoil at Tencent is re- regarding WeChat. So I want to first start off by getting some context to this. Recently, WeChat just turned seven and has a major conference in January 2018. There is a keynote that was done by the creator of WeChat, Alan Zhang. WeChat is a division under Tencent. So I want to start off maybe to help my audience to get understanding. So can you provide the background behind the creator of WeChat, Alan Chang, and his team, and how they actually took WeChat to become a key player within Tencent? Sure. Alan John is, you know, often described as the father of WeChat. He was actually hired by Tencent when Tencent bought a startup that Alan was uh, running in Guangzhou. Tencent is based in uh, Shenzhen, the southern Chinese city. But Guangzhou is like a two two hour drive, almost two hours by car away from uh, Shenzhen. And uh, Alan Zhang and his team, it was a small team. When Tencent bought his company, they stayed in Guangzhou. They opened up a research center there. And, and then later that team and you know a couple other team, new team members that they brought in created WeChat. It started as almost like a, a startup inside Tencent, uh, even though Tencent was already uh, you know, a very big company by then when Alan Zhang created WeChat in uh, 2011. So Tencent has a tradition of sort of different departments, almost competing against each other or trying to come up with better products but you know there's some internal competition to spice up things in a way WeChat is particularly almost independent within Tencent and part of it is having a completely separate campus which also by the way looks very different uh, if you go to Tencent in Shenzhen the HQ you have now this like a brand new futuristic twin towers but then if you go to Guangzhou to visit WeChat it's a sort of very small campus that what they call creative park where all these uh, low-rise buildings that used to be like a textile factory and they converted it to basically turn it into WeChat office buildings. It's a very quiet, you know, low-key kind of place. So that was where WeChat was created. And obviously the product did so well and to everyone's surprise, you know, a lot of Tencent executives have, you know, said that they, they themselves didn't expect WeChat to be this big. And this quickly. But it's definitely now, you know, one of their main products, especially in terms of generating traffic, you know, attracting users. It's a hugely important product. And that's one of the reasons that Tencent became, you know, $500 billion company. That's right. And one of the key things is that the way how WeChat integrates with the other applications that, for example, you can call, you can book a taxi through DD, you can buy things, you can order things, you can do almost everything, even I think reading court proceedings through WeChat. One thing that I liked about the article that you wrote was, I think you actually talk about a lot more about how Alan Zhang built his WeChat team and how his team views him. And he also had a status called WeGod in the WeChat division. Uh, how does Alan Zhang actually operate as a product visionary within the WeChat teams? Yeah, WeGod is uh, some employees refer to Alan Zhang as just kind of half-jokingly as a WeGod. I think he is really syn- synonymous with 
the product and the thinking behind WeChat. There are stories about the early years of WeChat when the team was very small and it started with just Alan and 11 people developing this uh, new app. People talk about sort of in the office, uh, Alan John would typically come in late and stay basically all night in the office and chain smoking and having very deep philosophical debates about the product with the team. You know, people talk about those early years and also how their episodes that really show how deeply Alan thinks about the product. He has a famous presentation that he gave inside the company uh, back in 2012 and that lasted for many hours and I think eight hours, including Q&A and in which, you know, he kind of laid out his thinking behind WeChat and including some of his uh, analysis of how users behave and, you know, users that uh, inherently lazy and you know if you include some text in the app i should be the length that that's short enough so that you can read it in one trip to the toilet i think his words the words of wisdom and those things have been i mean occasionally romanticized and you know to create this idea that really wechat is alan john and people say the team has grown and obviously it's not the small startup like team anymore it's much bigger now nearly two thousand people at uh, WeChat. But still, I think people do pay very close attention to what he says. And, you know, managers say that there may be debates about the details of how, you know, specific products are designed or, you know, very tiny little things. But nobody would disagree with Alan when it comes to more basic fundamental things. So if I were to look at like the US, the equivalence of Alan Jung with WeChat would be someone like Andy Rudin with Android, Scott Foster with iOS, or even Steven Sapnowski with Microsoft Windows. Possibly. Yeah, I mean, people have made many different comparisons or including Steve Jobs or yeah, I mean, people have made uh, all kinds of comparisons. Yes. Yeah, more product visionary, not so much into the business of the product itself. One thing that came up with this article that you've written is about some of the early employees and some of the key product managers leaving WeChat. Why is that happening? There have been, you know, turnovers throughout the years, but I think recently, you know, some startups have poached talent. For example, uh, there's a company called uh, Pinduoduo, which is a you know, very fast-growing e-commerce company, and they have attracted some talent from WeChat. Actually, Alan John himself mentioning Pinduoduo poaching talent from WeChat in a speech that he gave, the anniversary party that I talk about in the story, which happened in in uh, January. But you know, Alan talked about it as sort of a joke of uh, you know they're poaching talent because you know WeChat team is the best. But when I talk to some of the people who have recently left WeChat to join you know other startups, other tech companies. One of the things that they say is, you know, how WeChat has become a very mature product. And, you know, it's a very successful dominant product, but that also means for some uh, product managers that how are you going to have an impact now that it's so well established? And, you know, whatever you can work on could be incremental or so, you know, some people are attracted to the idea of, you know, joining a startup to create something new or you know, have a big impact. I think that there is this conversation about there is potential internal tension about the future of WeChat, I think more on the monetization front. 
So can you talk about that internal tension about WeChat and is it also partially the reason why some of these early employees or key product managers are leaving the division itself? So there are different views about you know what the next step is for WeChat and especially when it comes to how much commercialization, how great of a role should WeChat play in the commercial world. Some executives, you know, very senior executives like Martin Lau, the president of Tencent, has been saying for the past you know, two years that WeChat needs to serve you know, businesses, play a greater role in the commercial world, and also you know, make money. And you know, he has talked about these things at internal, some of the internal management meetings. If you look at the development of WeChat over the past few years, they have definitely you know, moved in this direction. And you know, they added advertisement, for example, into their news feed at the, you know, the Facebook-like section. They have also done it in a very, very controlled, restricted manner. So you know, the ads, for example, major cities, you only see like one ad a day if you're using WeChat moments. And Alan John, his comments on all these commercial activities and monetization on WeChat has been a lot more kind of ambivalent or ambiguous. When he talked about monetization, you know, in one of his speeches, for example, he, sh- he said monetization should be existent, but shapeless. You know, a lot of employees also talk about how Alan John was initially, you know, strongly opposed to the idea of WeChat carrying advertisement. But, you know, these things have happened and WeChat is definitely moving in that direction. But, you know, how quickly they should do it and uh, how much they should do it, you know, there are definitely questions about it. Employees who are working on, for example, some of the projects that involve, you know, marketing or e-commerce and they those people say you know they're sometimes frustrated because uh, they meet a lot of resistance because they're also this strong idea among product managers which you know kind of is coming from alan john's you know thinking behind the product and you know you should always focus on product and user experience and you know kind of you know commercialization is not or you know they're very careful about the idea of WeChat, you know, serving merchants or serving, you know, businesses wanting to advertise. And this is probably the question that I would probably ask. What's Alan Jung's eventual vision for WeChat then? So uh, there are some new projects, uh, new initiatives at WeChat. The biggest one is probably uh, mini programs, which started last year. It's like a, a sort of like an app store within WeChat where people can access all sorts of uh, programs that are not exactly apps, but sort of all these businesses that can create those programs and offer their services through WeChat. And it's a section of WeChat, basically, where you can access all those things. And this could turn WeChat into a gateway to basically an unlimited number of services, and especially those uh, like uh, offline businesses, stores, those could create those programs to basically have access to uh, WeChat users. And so, you know, some people think that this is uh, really going to be the next big step for WeChat. And Alan John has talked about mini programs and, you know, he has been promoting the idea. But what is the goal for mini programs? Is it really, you know, something that will attract all these businesses and, you know, let WeChat play a much bigger role? 
in commerce, for example, uh, those things are still not very clear. So, you know, is that what Alan John wants to do? Employees are not so sure about that. That's something. So they people think that you know they uh, WeChat could be at a turning point, or you know, this is at a point where it has become so big and successful. And the next stage of WeChat, some people think it's the mini programs that take it to the next stage, but other people are not so sure about it. So I'm gonna ask the unthinkable. That will be actually my last question. Would it be really unthinkable one day that Alan Chang would just leave WeChat from Tencent? If you ask employees, I think they would say it's unthinkable. I've never heard uh, of that possibility mentioned. Though I follow the company closely, so if I hear anything different, uh, I will let you know, or I, I will first write about it. <laughs> yeah, I think you will probably be the first one to write about it. <laughs> Okay, uh, Juro, many thanks for coming on the show. And uh, of course, it, to just to close it, I just wanted to ask uh, you, how do my audience find you? You can find me on most uh, social media. Uh, Twitter. I'm on Twitter, uh, WeChat. My email, juro at theinformation.com. And the best way to follow my stories is to subscribe to the information. So please subscribe. Thanks. You can find me at Bernard Leung or at bernardleung.com. You can subscribe to me in almost any podcast channels from ACAST, Stitcher, or even iTunes and Google Play in the US market. You can tweet to me, give me feedback. Please recommend us on iTunes with five stars because that will help a lot of other people to discover our podcast and of course a star on Overcast. So uh, once again, Juro, many thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.